You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast, and we have uh, B.L. Blanchard, uh, Brooke, uh, author of The Peacekeeper and soon to come out in May, uh, The Mother. Brooke, welcome to Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's... uh, um, I, uh, I was very excited to encounter your work and, uh, and, and also to see your first book and there's something exciting about maybe capturing you or connecting with you, like in the sense of like, just having, having this out there. Um, it was named a notable book, uh, for, for Michigan. Um, so, you know, being seen and, and recognized, um, I wanted to ask you uh, off the bat because I know you've had other things you've done in life and, and, and work and professional and creating things. When did you see yourself um, in, in this sense uh, as, as a writer, as writing, uh, as writing this book, what, as far as your identity? What, what was your experience? Well, like a lot of writers, I have always wanted to write. I can't remember a time where I didn't think of myself as, at the very least, an aspiring writer. Um, And it was something I've always, always wanted to do. Um, Like a lot of kids, books were my escape. Books were my friends. Books were where a lot of my memories happened. And I wanted to create it. Um, And so it was always there in the background. But I always thought I need to do something that that's not a career path. That's not a realistic thing to do. So um, it was just always there in the background. And then I, I got this idea several years ago and was, you know, excited about it in a way I hadn't been about any other writing project I've done. And it happened that I was on maternity leave with my second child and I knew I would be going back to work and so after dealing with a colicky baby for three months, uh, after about three months, she could sleep through, you know, you could actually set her down once in a while. And I had another three months until I was going back to work. So I thought it's now or never. I've got to, if I'm going to do it, this is the time. Yeah. And um, by day, I'm a lawyer. And if being a lawyer has taught me nothing else, it's how to write to meet a deadline. So um, I thought I, I want to do this and I'm going to do it now because who knows what things will look like when I come back from leave and what things looked like when I came back from leave, by the way, was the pandemic. So, um, it was, I'm especially glad I wrote when I had the chance. And, um, so that's when I really started to take it serious, you know, seriously in the sense of I'm going to do this, I'm going to try to get it published, but I was going to write it either way. And I've, you know, written other books that will never see the light of day or started and abandoned projects. So, Writing is something that I've always done and would always do, even if it never were, was going to be published. Um, you just, you know, you can't help yourself. You're always coming up with stories. You you live with these characters. You, you know, you have to do it. That's that's kind of my my feeling with writing. Yeah. Wow. And I talk about a, a windy, windy, quick story of a few years right there. And and I once you said the once you said the length of time and colicky baby, I'm like, well, you know. 
deep needs uh, from from the child and uh, sleep and things like that. Um, hey, folks, I want uh, to to listeners to um, mention do a, a, just a, a description of um, the the peacekeeper, um, which is the big thing uh, we'll be talking about. Um, uh, so, Brooke, I'm going to read the listeners' uh, description, a basic description at the beginning of what the peace uh, the peacekeeper is. Against the backdrop of a never-colonized North America, a broken Ojibwe detective embarks on an emotional and twisting journey towards solving two murders, rediscovering family, and finding himself. North America was never colonized. The United States and Canada don't exist. The Great Lakes are surrounded by an independent Ojibwe nation, and in the village of Bawitigong, a peacekeeper confronts his devastating past. Uh, that was enough to enough to get me in, and um, so your 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 backdrop, your setting, is you know a different history, an alternate uh, history, and the development of a history without or limited contact um, uh, without you know without colonization, and within the, the book, uh, there's the the, the language. Uh, native language, and there's also the development of different types of um, traditions around uh, justice, uh, and and just different social social ways of movements amongst amongst folks. How tough was it to create a, a, a world for, for readers that they could enter into, but was a lot different, uh, or, or, or is a completely different history? What what how was that? Creating the world was the first thing I did, and I sort of came up with the plot afterward. Um, the initial vision I had for it, I was driving to work. I live and work in San Diego, California, so I, and my I work downtown. And my commute takes me through Balboa Park, and it kind of spits you out right into the middle of downtown. It's a really pretty drive. And I was as I kind of drove in. I just, you know, I was looking up at the buildings I'd seen a million times, and I kind of pictured one that had a. And this building does appear in the book. It's a high rise skyscraper, but it has a dream catcher, and then it's almost like a cathedral window is the dream catcher in the window. And I thought, ooh, what would that look like? And spent a long, long time, like. A, a couple of years thinking about what this world would look like. Now, you know, Native community, we are not a monolith. I know people who have thought about a world without colonization their whole lives. Me, I, I had never really thought about it until I came up with this idea. So some people have thought about it in very different ways, and there are so many ways you could go with it. Um, I kind of thought about it linearly at first. If I were to you know, okay, if, you know, no colonization had happened in the 15th and 16th centuries, well, how does that change reality? There's probably no transatlantic slave trade. So how does that impact Africa? How does that impact Europe? Do they try to colonize elsewhere? Or do they not? Um, and it, it just lots of different ways you could go with it. And there's really, you know, you kind of, get the sense for how much of this history is really in, interwoven with each other and how different the world could look. And then I eventually decided, I kind of want to just have, think of my end result, how 
and and what I wanted to see was, you know, a 21st century, I can't talk, 21st century industrialized, you know, city with a lot of familiar technology to us, but one that was, you know, kind of built and created out of more native values than a lot of what might ring familiar to those of us living in our world. So sure. um, that was sort of where I started. I, but I thought that while, you know, society would look very different, the values would look very different, and just the the world itself would look different, um, a lot of things would be the same because, you know, humans are going to human no matter what timeline <laughs> you're in. So, um you know, the, the plot is a murder mystery. Um, and, you know, there's things that I think that the society in The Peacekeeper does better than, you know, Western society does, but there's a lot of things that they don't do as well or they or do as just as poorly. You know, it, is, it espouses equality, but that's a, a problem. Every, no matter your system of government, no matter your, your economic system, there has always been a problem with inequality. And there's always been a problem with you know, especially a large society living up to the values that it, that it preaches. So people will fall through the cracks. It's not utopia. Um, so that was a, a big one, but I did want it to feel, um, and so I thought that would make it familiar. There's the book, it kind of takes place. It starts in a very small village called Bowitagong, which is where uh, the cities of Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario and Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan on the St. Mary's river. It's a small town and our, our hero, Chibanashi, has to go to the big city, Chicago, which is where what we know is Chicago, and kind of gets a taste of the city after living in a small village. And I think that would ring true for a lot of people as real. Well, I um, lived in Sault Ste. Marie when I was a kid. I, um, we then lived in a very rural area of Sacramento, California. So um, moving to a more urban place um, can be a bit of a culture shock um, when you do that. And again, no matter what timeline we're in, there's going to be those divides. There's going to be, you know, what it feels like to be in an insular community. Some people feel very safe. Some people feel very trapped. Um, You get to a city, some people feel at home, they feel free. Some feel isolated and exposed and want to go back. So I think that that human condition is going to be the same everywhere. And that's something I thought would not only help people get assimilated into the world, but also show you know, we're just people. <laughs> and, oh, um, definitely. yeah, yeah. You know, well, what's funny is one of the first early readers on the book gave me a, um, the feedback of, oh, I just love how the, the, the Chippewa have cell phones. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm a Chippewa who has a cell phone. So there is like a perception that, you know, we live this very separate and apart existence. And I wanted to show, no, we, we really don't. Um, yeah, we're, right, we're people right. like anyone else. Um, and, you know, probably more, we're all more similar than we are different. Yeah. You know, one of one of the things in in going into uh, and in reading the book, um, and we talked about the language. I think, uh, and, and you had hinted at it, and with work that you do, uh, you know, uh, within law. But the ideas of justice, I thought, were kind of. Um, they, I, I love interrogating the idea of justice because I think, and I'm not speaking for you, but I'm speaking about what the perception around. Um, our system, like our justice system, say in the U.S. and and and, and mass incarceration, and 
incredible issues. But even on justice, the idea of opposition within justice, of you know, hiding what might be the truth, parties might be in the position of sequestering things away and not showing because there's an advocacy versus a um, defense. And I think within the introduction of a different concept is not it's not just foofy ideas. It's restorative. It's moving towards truth. It's moving towards a, a, a dialogue. Yes, there's somebody hurt. There are victims and there are perpetrators, but can we, it's almost like, can we not injure society further when we go through the justice system and damage society through it? But can we bring justice in through it? And just that general idea I found to be the most intellectually uh, stimu- stimulating for me. And again, it's not just like, oh, justice will work perfectly in that system. But the idea that it's more calibrated towards understanding what happened and how to recover. And, um, and of course, I with with the murders within the book, uh, tied it closely and contemporarily with MMIW, um, MMIP, uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls and Two Spirits, that that massive issue is right is right there and its echoes are right there um do you think what you show as an idea of uh the justice system in in the peacekeeper is a direction that is helpful to move or to think about in policy i sure hope so so um for background in the peacekeeper the justice system works very differently than how it does in the Western world um, and probably most of the world. So it's instead of a, you, you know, in especially, and I can only really speak to the U.S. system, you have the prosecutor, you have the defendant, you have the judge, and you have the jury. And in the criminal justice system, now I've, um, I've worked with in the public defender, um, my own one of my own, my own father has been in and out of the criminal justice systems. This is one that I just have been on multiple sides of now. Um, the focus, the spotlight is laser focused on the defendant. Whether or not this person is guilty, we're going to present evidence of this person, or if you have multiple defendants, their guilt. Um, and you're going to decide if so, how are they going to be punished? That is the the system that is the focus. That's not how other disputes get resolved in the U.S. Now, I'm primarily a, a civil lawyer. I, I work um, in those types of disputes, so not in the criminal system. Most of those get resolved through, I mean, there is a trial system. You have the plaintiff, you have the defendant. The plaintiff is arguing that the defendant is liable, and you have to decide if so. But the vast, vast, vast majority of those disputes get resolved through a system called mediation. or And that's where everyone gets in a room or a couple rooms, and they hash it out and they negotiate what's what's a settlement that everyone can at least live with. Maybe they're not everyone's happy, but what's an amount of usually money that everyone can live with that will make that will resolve the dispute. And this is how much criminal how criminal cases are resolved in indigenous societies. Now I looked and I looked and I tried to find what is the Anishinaabe system of justice pre-colonial. I looked, I couldn't find it. It's probably, I'm sure it's out there and I, I failed to. So I thought if I, if we take this, but the idea of restorative justice is not mine. It's 
ingrained in, in many, many tribal societies and it's still practiced. I looked at um, the biggest one I looked at are Navajo peacemaker courts. Um, and I've also looked at historical records of other tribes, um, primarily um, Algonquin area tribes and came up with, okay, this is how the justice system would be. So if rather than focusing on the defendant and whether this person did it and this person is guilty, what if we shift that focus to the victim? What would make this, how has this person been wronged and what would make them whole? And again, that's kind of the idea when you're in um, mediation is what's an, what is a resolution that makes everyone, that everyone can live with and that seems fair to resolve the dispute. If you took that attitude toward criminal justice, I mean, in the book, we see, we don't, it's, it's certainly not fail safe, right? <laughs> but I do think that regardless of your political bent or how much you've interacted with the criminal justice system, probably everyone think, would probably agree that our system could you, has room for improvement. And so this is not a fail-safe one. It's not a perfect one. I don't think such a thing exists. Um, but to have a system where you're looking at, okay, victim, here's what happened to you. What will make you whole? What have you lost? What can this person do that will, you know, you can't unring the bell. You can't undo what happened. But what can they do to help bring you back to what makes you whole? And if you approach it from that, it becomes less punitive. It becomes, um, you know, the person's not a pariah. They're part of the solution. Um, and that way everyone can kind of try to resolve it and move on. And that, I think, would be a really great way to resolve disputes. Again, it's it's not perfect. <laughs> um, it certainly isn't in the book. But that would be, I think, a step in the right direction because right now, if you're caught up in the criminal justice system, that's a stain that doesn't, in America especially, um, that stain does not wash off. That record follows you. Um, it attaches itself to your family. Um, growing up, having had a father in and out of prison, I certainly felt that. That's I deliberately wrote The Peacekeeper from the perspective of, who, of a person whose father has been in prison for a crime. And from that perspective, um, a lot of writers write from that perspective, but I I don't think a lot of them write from having lived that perspective. So right now you can, if you're caught up in the criminal justice system, you can serve your time, but you're never truly done. You're never truly out of it. And it's recidivism rates are very high for a reason. Once you're in, it's very difficult to get into, you know, stable employment, housing, all sorts of things. It's very, very difficult once you're in it. And so if the idea is, well, let's focus on making the victim whole, that allows everyone to move on and everyone to become a productive member of society, or at the very least sets up the opportunity for that to happen much more than our punitive system is set up. So I think that would have a lot to recommend to it. Thanks a lot for what you had had to say, because there's, in, in, in sharing that, um, because... You know, I I I, th I think at at one point and maybe still, as far as incarceration rates, it was the United States was, you know, the highest rate of incarceration, and there was these massive and in profit incentives um, for prisons and privatization within prisons and aspects of prison labor, and of course, drug crimes and things that came from the eighties and nineties, which damaged communities and families and we're still because of the how the system went or at least my understanding of how the system went that like we need to like mitigate damage somewhere and i'm not trying to be pollyannish about it but like we need to mitigate the damage has happened things have occurred 
and I feel like a lot of times we we add on to it um, uh, with some wrong incentives. And uh, I, I, I think the introduction of 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 the notions that you have in there is just really fertile intellectually and um, within the book. You know, just how is this going to happen? What's going to come out of this uh, process that that feels new to a lot of folks? Um, okay. I want to talk a couple art questions because now you're writing books and you're creating <laughs> art, <laughs> art and literature. But I, uh, uh, in moving into how much you put into uh, creativity and the way that you did it, say I'm going to do this now. Um, <laughs> I wanted I wanted to ask you. You're creating something, and I wanted to ask your thoughts around creativity and and, and about what is what is art. I just think how cool is it that I had this idea one day while driving to work and I thought about it for a long time and on a time deadline, put it on a piece of paper and that has now been shared with people who are experiencing it through reading it. That's, that's almost like magic to me. And you know how, and I do this as a reader, um, you know, when I consume a piece of art, you know, a book or a film or a painting or what have you, a play, you know, you're oh, part of the magic of it is you're caught up with these things that are completely make belief, um, that are the figment of someone else's imagination. But we forge a connection through it because we get to experience it together. We experience this thing that we have made up, and I just think that's what's so you know, I, I hate to say it again, but magical and, and wonderful it about is. art is we we use this as a way to connect with each other. Just these things that are inside of us, we express it someone else experiences it, they're going to experience it differently from the person who created it. it. You know, somewhat my internal view of what Chicago looks like is probably going to look different from yours, probably different from anyone else's. And that's what's so great about it. You know, multiple people can look at the same piece of art, could read the same book, see the same film or play or look at the same painting and get completely different things out of it. And they're all right. Every single person's take of it is absolutely valid and correct. And that's, again, all from a little germ germinating seed in one person's mind. I think that's what's so cool about art is and the connections we all make through it. I mean, how many I know I've definitely made friends and, and um, you know, really grown friendships because we liked the same book or we liked the same TV show or or something like that. But that and book clubs, those are people getting together. We're all going to read this thing and talk about it and form th- friendships through it. I think that's really cool about art. Yeah, I think it could be really profound, and particularly if you're sensitive to to art, like I, I'm, I'm sensitive, and, and and imagine you are quite sensitive to art. But how what it does um, to jostle or invoke or inspire and i think in doing the podcast what i decided to do as a way to live or partially live is to put myself in contact with that because i am different much 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 different than when i first started the show and it's in contact with things i might know a little about a lot about but it's in contact with art and and that magic too and going back like right when you said it like the ideas in my head that's like like the neuron fired in your head and then things carry from that and i i i wouldn't shy i mean that is the magic and i i i really uh i really connect with that sense that the sentiment and uh and which is really cool is um 
the uh, another book in in the series that I understand to be within the universe, um, uh, the mother, uh, due to may uh, be out May twenty third of twenty twenty three, which is a really cool number. And date. I was so excited about this book, Brooke. I already told you. I said I was going to be getting it at the bookstore months before it even came out. My bookseller, uh, Browser's Bookstores, right down the street, uh, who has copies, if you're in Albany, Oregon, has copies of The Peacekeeper, um, told me that, Ken, no, I don't have uh, the copy of the mother for you because uh, it's out in May, and I said thank you. <laughs> so, um, so in this in the universe, and just just give us a little bit about that because obviously I'm excited to get to the next one. Yeah, so the mother is it's in the same universe. I'm calling it sort of the mirror image or the companion novel. So it's different characters, different plot line. And it's set in the Europe that never had overseas empires. So what? that's a big question I got as I was telling people about the idea and when I was writing the book and when people were reading is, well, what, what does Europe look like? And so, well, we're going to find out. Um, so it's a... Um, it's more of a thriller. It's not a murder mystery. It starts in England. It starts in uh, Suffolk, which is sort of on the the east coast of, of England. And it takes us through to Bruges in what we know as Belgium, down to Frankfurt in what we know as Germany, to Strasbourg in what we know as France. And you know, uh, other points from there. And it's, um, so first off, the borders are very different. Um, one of the things I love about The Peacekeeper, and I'm so happy that my publisher agreed to do, is that we have a map at the beginning that shows what the Americas look like from a new perspective. Yeah, it is yeah. consistent with um, Anishinaabe tradition. It, the map is oriented toward the east, so it looks sideways from how we typically look at a map. It's not oriented toward the north. Um, I'm a huge map nerd um, and geography nerd. So, you know, one thing that blew my mind when I learned about this years and years ago is that there's no reason why it has to be oriented. Maps have to be oriented toward north. That's done by custom more than anything else. So what I love about the map is it tells you just in one image, you're going to be looking at America from a new perspective. There are no borders. You just see the names of peoples. Um you know, different um, tri different tribes, different nations, but nations are not the same as states. You know, right. state is drawing a line around a piece of land. Nations are people. You have the nations, you see it in a different language, and it look and you can tell, okay, this is a different world, but you, it tells you almost 500 years of history in a single image because nowhere in the book do we go into why America or how America, you know, avoided being colonized. Similarly, in The Mother, we have we have a map and it shows how the borders are different. And that kind of tells a story as well and it, um, of kind of how and why the, how the world looks different and maybe gives some hints as to how colonization could have been avoided. By the way, I think any theory on how, if you want to think about, well, how, how did colonization not happen and what went wrong or what went not wrong on the, you know, what went wrong to have it happen in the real world, what went right to avoid it in the book. I think any theory is valid. And the reason I do is because I don't think it was just one thing. Um, 
any major disaster, a lot of things have to go wrong for something to happen. Um, I think yeah. I've used this analogy before, but um, when uh, I used to watch this show, I think it was on Discovery or something like that. It was called Seconds from Disaster. And it talks about how any major disaster, like the Titanic, the Hindenburg, the Challenger, it's never one thing that goes wrong. It's a chain of things that go wrong. And if one of those things doesn't go wrong, the whole disaster is avoided. You have to have all those things. And I don't think colonization, genocide, I don't think that's any different. I think a lot of things had to go wrong for that to happen. A lot, you know, a lot, almost a perfect storm of, of terrible incidents and terrible people and terrible germs and, and all sorts of things. So if you're, so point being, if you look in the map, you'll see some things that might suggest, oh, here's how it was not avoided um, or how it was avoided. Um but it's not the whole story, but it's, it's, I, the point is I want people thinking about it because I bet if I asked 10 different people, I'd get 10 different answers and I hope that I would. And that's the point. It did, it was not inevitable. Um, it did not have to go this way. It was not preordained. Um, there was not a lack of will to fight. There was not a, a difference in natural ability or intelligence. It was truly like all major disasters. I think a lot of bad things came together to create one really horrible thing. So in the mother, um, you do see that map in there that gives you an idea of how it got to this point. Um, and it's the story of a woman who's in a marriage in a very restrictive society in a very obscure nation called England, um, which if Eng Britain doesn't have the British Empire, it's an island in the North Sea. That's cold and, and rainy. <laughs> cold and rainy and has a really weird language that makes no sense because it's basically three languages in a trench coat. And, um, you know, in this very restrictive society, how do you get out and where do you go and how do you escape? Um, so that's kind of where we we pick up. And the 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 cover is sort of the opening image of the novel, which I love. I think it captures the mood really well. Um, I drew on, I lived in the UK for a year when I was in undergrad and, you know, went to all these cities um, over the course of my time there. So I, since I wrote this in a pandemic, I could not go visit it. Um, so I drew on, on memories and pictures and talking to friends who, you know, went on, those excursions with me and yeah. my, my awesome friend, Toby, who was one of my flatmates in the UK, he's from Suffolk and he took some time to take me on the zoom tour to make sure I got the, the oh, ambiance yeah. right there. And, um, yeah, and the areas are mine, not his. And so, yeah, that's kind of where we, where we begin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's coming in 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 May, and uh, and thanks for telling a, a, a bit about it and uh, some of the pieces in there. I've uh, I've uh, I went the the last time I've been to been blessed to be able to go to uh, London twice in my life, and the last time I went, I had this is just the way that I am. I my guidebook was Weird London, so <laughs> like it was geographically centered, and if you know, old bones were buried over here, or if there's a haunting or there's a scandalous book. So, um, so it was, it was really fun. And I was just kind of picking up on like thinking back and what was it like? What, did that actually happen or what were the colors or, and so I think it's a, a an interesting piece of the be of the research at the best you can and go back and like 
did we actually see that and what did it look like and uh and has some folks there i um we're speaking with author bl blanchard um uh brooke is uh sue saint uh sue saint marie uh a member of sue saint maria chippewa and i did not ask you brooke about a related question uh to to art and i think you hinted at it but a question i ask on the show is uh uh, myself and my guests think art is important, but what is the, the, the role of art? And as of right now, is, is there anything different about the world or different about us where art's role has changed? I think that art can be sort of whatever. It's one thing for the person creating it. it you know, that's often a way of someone to work through some sort of emotion or experience or idea that they have. And that's the expression of it. I think the role is different for the person who's consuming it. Um, you know, they are receiving something. Maybe they're getting something out of it completely different from what the person who created it intended or was going for. Maybe you'll read into it deeper meaning, meanings than even the creator knew about, or you'll or you're getting something that they hoped someone would find. Um, so I think that you know the role of it. It's it's going to depend on who you're talking to. Um, such a lawyer answer, right? It depends. But, <laughs> but it, I think it's true. I, I didn't think say that, anything. You know, I, I didn't say anything. <laughs> I read a lot. Um, you know, the last few years I've read between like 60 and 90 books a year the last few years. Um, and I get, you know, when I'm reading a book, sometimes I'm doing it to escape. Sometimes I'm doing it for research. Sometimes I think it's because it's a book about very important things written by someone with a very important perspective. Um, so I'm reading it for very important reasons. Um, sometimes it's I'm having a bad day and I need to escape and I want a book about people who are happy and falling in love. Um, so what we seek it out for kind of reflects what we need. But that's, um, you know, that's its role, I think, is to give uh, help us sort through things and help us, you know, whether it's escapism or you know, you want to feel a certain way. I mean, how many of us listen to sad songs when we're already sad? Um, You know, it helps us work through our emotions. And I think that's a big role of art and it's universal. Everyone feels these things. Everyone needs that sort of insight. Um, And again, it helps us connect. You know, you can find communities based on art and a lot of people do. Maybe you are not alike in any other way, but you both love a creator's work or you both love a piece of art and you can discuss it and and find connection through it. Um, In terms of how has the role of art changed, I think it's a lot more, um, what is the word? Mass produced and mass, you know, it's made for mass for wider audiences. And so you have more people consuming the same things. Mm. I think that's, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think that it necessarily excludes other things, although it does, make it harder for creators to break in. And, and it may, well, I guess I, sh- I guess I shouldn't say that there isn't anything bad to it, but um, it, it's good and bad, right? On yeah. the one hand, there's, you know, these pieces of art that millions of people um, can consume and bond over and talk about. It does mean that you get more of a flattening of, of things. It, it is harder for other perspectives and other and smaller creators to get out there. So the audience is a little less fragmented. Um, so 
you know, I, I think, but I think its role is always going to be the same where we, we seek it out for various reasons and we're all going to get something different out of it. And, you know, ultimately I think what we want is some sort of connection, whether it's with ourselves, whether it's with the person creating it, you feel a connection with that person or you feel a connection with other people who are consuming it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, the power of the connection within it is, is, is the, the big draw for me. Like I'm always organizing people and organizing thought and for myself and understanding. So it has that massive power. And I want to, I want to just, you were talking about, you know, just reading and sometimes it's good to just pause right there because I found myself, um, getting a lot more benefits with, just setting the time to read and it's the balance and the cadence in my head and the movement, whatever that type of moment is, because I just hearken back to when I was much younger, I had a very intensive reading period of, of a few months where I was definitely reading like 300 plus pages a day. And it's like every single day. And I was young, but I was smart enough to know at the end that was different. I was just different. I was a different human after it than I was before it. And if you have that experience, just the experience of, of, of reading and reading deeply, that's love to talk about books. (laughs) 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 And that's why, that's, that's, that, that's why uh, I love, it's great. It's great to, to talk to you. I can recognize the importance of particular books and what they're doing for you. When I was 11, I didn't know when I was 11 sitting in back of the Toyota Corolla hatchback, my parents on a short trip reading War of the Worlds, why I needed it, why War of the Worlds was important to me, a city kid, but it was, I like this place and that can be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, I was obsessed with babysitters club books starting when I was about eight until I was about 10 or 11. I think I read all of them, all hundred something, multiple times. My favorite one, like I read it so many times the cover fell off. And yes. what's interesting is when I went to the UK, so so my favorite, if anyone is listening and liked Babysitter's Club books, my favorite was one called Stacy's Emergency. And it's a, she's a character who has type one diabetes and she's hospitalized in that book because um, it acts up. So, okay. I read that in the mid nineties, early to mid nineties. Yeah. Years later when I'm I just turned 20 years old. I moved to the UK to be an exchange student. And my flat had other exchange students from all over the world. And right across the hall was my friend Soojin Kim, who was from Korea. And she and I, t- we had, we both loved the Babysitter's Club books. We, that was our favorite book. We had the same favorite. And we both quoted the same favorite line from it. Two people who grew up on opposite sides of the world read the same book separately. And they found themselves in a, in a, third foreign in a foreign country together and immediately we were like oh we both read this book and loved it and we quoted the exact same line to each other i think that's what's so cool about books that is that that is just <laughs> that's just incredible um yeah the, yeah by the way was I was sick and tired of being sick and tired like as soon as we one of us said well stacy's emergency is my favorite and the other one said i was sick and tired and the other one finished of being sick and tired it was so cool it's like writing writing dialogue right off the right off the bat with it i, I don't yeah. know if he came in contact with it but it was it was um 
I think it was Roxanne Gay, and I for, I forget if it was like Sweet Valley High or she went deep into this, deep into the meaning, deep into like I don't like I'm doing I'm putting out all these theories. Like I am up and proud about this. This is so important to me, and in just that experience, and I think. I think that 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 declaration is 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 always good um, because it, it connects you because if something's important to you, I think a lot of times people go along and they're like, oh, well, that wasn't really that important to me. No, it was important to you. It still is important to you. Um, OK, leading from there and jumping on over to uh, the big question uh, that I ask on the show. Um uh, Brooke, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, oh boy. Um, I guess if you think about it in terms of art, if we don't have it, like we're just surviving, right? We're, we're going through the motions we're living. I think our connections are less, are less connected. Our experience is less vibrant when we're not creating art. I mean, that is what we, we create. That's what survives. I mean, we see cave paintings from, 40,000 years ago and we see pottery and we see all sorts. It's the art that survives. Like maybe some weapons, maybe some, you know, um, uh, foundations of buildings, maybe some remnants of, of things, but really what gives us the insight is the art. It's the writing, it's the painting, it's the pottery. It's, it's what survives that tells us so much about ourselves. And that, I think that makes us something, um, cause otherwise what, what are we doing? You know, and, and you don't have to be a creator yourself. Like I spent years and years writing stories or starting stories that no one but me ever will read. That was still valuable to me and helped made me something, you know, whenever, you know, I still will journal if I'm going through something I've taught my, my kids to do that too. If they have, you know, a lot of feelings to work out, I say, well, write down what you're, what you're feeling. And yeah. You know, it, it that's our way for me. It's it's writing. That's the the form of art that I've always connected to the most. I've been driven to create um, and and reading. You know, other people's words. Um, you know, that's what help, we have. All these things going on in our heads. We have all these thoughts, these feelings. This is sort of a safe way to channel it into into something that creates it. It doesn't have to be good or bad. That's not the point. What matters is we've created it. It is the expression of a feeling and it's taking the intangible and making it tangible. We're literally making something out of it. And, you know, we are still something, even if we haven't done it, but that helps, helps us see it and, and experience it and understand it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, maybe putting the pen to putting the pen to paper and, and, and having it having to go out that way. Um, no, I really appreciate your thoughts there. I want the audience to be able to connect with the literary works and art of BL Blanchard. Brooke, can you tell us, uh, where to go? I had already, so folks and listeners, if they're in Albany, Oregon browsers, bookstore, uh, making sure they order them. Uh, but if you're not <laughs> located in this area, uh, Brooke, where 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 do we find you? Well, the books are available everywhere. Books are sold. Um, your library, bookstores, online, what have you. Um, I'm on 
I'm moving away from Twitter like everyone else, but I'm at BL Blanchard on Twitter and I'm on Instagram at BL Blanchard underscore rights. And um, I have a website, blblanchard.com that links to all of the above and hopefully you'll reach out and say hi. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, it's, it's nice. It's nice to to talk at this time too, with the, uh, the, the work you have coming out and just in hearing about it. And, and thank you for sharing, uh, you know, yourself and your thoughts and, and back behind it. I, um, there's something special about talking about books and, and, and I think you feel the power of them and the connection to them. And it just, uh, just for us to have the ability to chat about this, um, which uh, I deeply enjoy and highly, highly recommend. So looking forward to the next one. But um, thanks for coming on to the show and, and, and talking about uh, talking about your writing and uh, really encourage everybody uh, check out uh, B.L. Blanchard's work. And um, thanks again, Brooke. Really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. This was this was wonderful. Take care. This is something rather than nothing.